Hey y'all, happy Women's History Month. This month, the black women that I want to talk about are black nuns. Women who have been written out of Catholic history, American history, and black history, but who had an important role in all three of those. I learned this because the first full survey of black sisters' lives is coming out this year, 2022. Feels late, but that's a lot of the reason why this matters so much and why I want to talk about it. The book is called Subversive Habits, Black Catholic Nuns in the Long African-American Freedom Struggle. And though it doesn't come out till May of 2022, that's not going to stop me from talking to its author, Professor Shannon D. Williams of the University of Dayton, about this because I didn't know Black nuns existed and I had to learn more. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor Williams. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. What's super exciting about this book is that in centering Black Catholic history, you really changed the whole narrative of the 1800s and the 1900s, even into the 21st century. And since it changes the whole narrative, I kind of want to just start at the beginning, where one of the first things you establish in the book is that Catholicism is a lot less European than we traditionally think it is. Right. When I actually began the project, I was really uncertain about what I would find. Although I'm a lifelong Catholic, I knew very little about Black Catholic history outside of my own family's history, a very small sort of piece of my family. My mother was educated in Catholic schools and converted to Catholicism as a young girl. And my sister and I were raised Catholic when my father was Protestant. So outside of my mother's own journey in 1974, my mother became one of the first three Black women to graduate from the University of Notre Dame. That's all I knew about Black Catholic history. I was completely unaware of the existence of Black sisters. And my mother was born and raised and educated in the Catholic schools of Savannah, Georgia, where two of the African-American sisterhoods were founded. And her white educators never mentioned that. The denial is undeniable, right? And then stumbled upon an article while I was in graduate school that announced this formation of this Black Power Federation of Catholic Nuns. And I saw for the first time a photograph of four smiling Black Catholic nuns. And I experienced what I can only call a metanoia. Like, oh my goodness, how do Black nuns exist? And that sort of sent me on this journey to try to figure out as much as I could about this organization and the wider history of Black Catholic nuns in the United States. And so along that process, I realized that my understanding of the roots of American Catholicism My understanding of everything about African-Americans' journey in the church had to be reframed. So much of the story that we get really begins, and I should say American, and at this point, for those those who use American to only mean the U.S. Catholic Church, primarily sort of focus on the rise of the church beginning in the antebellum north, where we begin to see significant numbers of immigration from Europe, where we will sort of see, in many ways, sort of a stronghold of the U.S. Catholic Church. What was interesting for me is in order to tell Black sister stories, I had to go back to those earlier foundations. The U.S. Catholic Church does not begin in the urban north, but it actually begins in the south. Like in Latin America and the Caribbean, the church is founded as a slaveholding institution. That I had to learn that there were two transatlantic stories of American Catholicism, one that begins in Europe. And another one that begins in Africa or begins with African descended people who are living in Europe or a part of many of these earliest sort of voyages into the Americas. I had to sort of grapple with some dates, right? So often we focus on 1619 as sort of this moment in which we get the first enslaved Africans brought into the land territory that become the United States. But it's important to remember that almost a century before, the Spanish are the ones to begin the institution of chattel slavery, African slavery in what becomes the United States. 
And I point that number of 1565 with the formation and the creation of St. Augustine, which is our nation's oldest city. And I found among many things that the first Christian marriage that actually took place in what becomes the United States is between a free black Catholic woman from Spain and a Spanish soldier. The idea that Christian marriage is inaugurated by a free black Catholic woman was something that was not known to me that has not been fully incorporated into stories of the American Catholic experience. But also when we sort of talk about this big American Catholic experience, we just can't really focus on the United States too, right? We have to talk about the entire Americas. And what we realize is that the vast majority of people who have lived their lives under the signpost of Catholicism have not been European. They have been African descended or Native American. And so for me, even though the numbers of Black Catholics in the United States has been marginal, if we tell that earlier story, it's not a marginal story, but even with those smaller numbers, that does not mean that Black Catholic history does not matter. And it certainly doesn't mean that the history of Black Catholic nuns does not matter. What I wanted to do in this book is to suggest and really sort of give a sense of what the story of the U.S. church would look like if we narrated it from the perspective of Black Catholic nuns. Because these women and their roots in the American Catholic Church are as deep and sometimes deeper than their white and European counterparts. And so part of what I wanted to do was to say, there has always been an an articulation of U.S. Catholicism that understood that Black lives and Black souls matter. We just simply need to tell the stories of Black Catholics who have for far too long been ignored, marginalized, and even just flat out erased in too many dominant narratives of the church. It's important work. One of the things you just mentioned, Catholicism is generally associated with the urban North, but it has Southern roots. And those are actually where the first Black sisters come into the story. So let's go to the slave South and talk about these first sisters. Right. You know, the South has something to say. What we have forgotten is that the cradles of American Catholicism are in Florida, are in Maryland are in Kentucky, are in Missouri and Louisiana. What was really fascinating for me was to not only sort of realize that it was these cradles that were producing Black vocations to religious life, but this is where we will get our first successful Roman Catholic sisterhoods freely open to Black women and girls. It is the United States that will give America and the modern world its first Roman Catholic sisterhoods for Black women. The first attempt is made, that we know of, is made in the Holy Land of Kentucky. That is an area of central Kentucky where in the late 18th and early 19th century, you have significant numbers of Catholic Marylanders migrating into that area. And we'll get many early Catholic sisterhoods, monasteries built. And as these free settlers are moving, they are oftentimes bringing their enslaved human chattel with them. And so this is why we will see a significant and very prominent Black Catholic community in Kentucky. But the first community we get is in Kentucky, 1824, formed as an auxiliary community to the Sisters of Loretto at the Foot of the Cross, which is one of the earliest Catholic sisterhoods with a U.S. foundation, meaning that the community is founded in the United States as opposed to these were sisters being sent from another community, say, in Europe. And in this particular instance, we know that at least three, but maybe even five women, it could possibly be more, women were allowed to sort of enter a community very briefly, but after the priest who had founded the community decides to leave, Uh, his successor decides to suppress that community. It's very short-lived, not more than a year. And then we get the first successful community founded in Baltimore, Maryland, the Oblate Sisters of Providence, who are still with us. They are the nation's first successful community of African-American nuns, also the first successful community that we know of that is church-approved in the modern Atlantic world. And this is significant. If we sort of take into account Brazil, which is home to a substantial Black Catholic population, 
Brazil will not get its first Catholic sisterhood freely open to African descended women until 1928. So that's almost a century after the Oblate Sisters of Providence were founded in Baltimore in 1829. And they are in many ways sort of the product of the Haitian Revolution. Three of its four foundresses were Haitian women or of Haitian descent. And this sort of mass immigration of refugees, both free and enslaved, into the America as a result of the Haitian Revolution will create a humanitarian crisis. You have all of these people who need to be ministered to, and yet there is an unwillingness specifically to minister to those who are of African descent. The conditions of the Haitian Revolution create an opportunity for women who felt called to religious life to form their own order, and they win the support of the church to do so. I think what's very significant about the foundresses of the Oblate Sisters of Providence is even though they are finally allowed to sort of form their own community in 1829, that they had been waiting for 10 years. So that means they had been asking to go into communities in Baltimore and they were being refused. So the formation of Black sisterhoods in the United States is a direct result of the anti-Black admissions policies of the nation's earliest white sisterhoods, many of whom are slaveholding communities. The second community is founded in Louisiana. They are the Sisters of the Holy Family who are also still with us. And in fact, we know that there have been at least eight historically Black sisterhoods founded in the United States. All but one were slated to be teaching communities, and all were founded in the South. And so I think when we talk about sort of the Southern dimensions of American Catholicism, of U.S. Catholicism, we have no choice but to talk about the African foundations, and especially in a place like Louisiana. By the early 19th century, the church in New Orleans is a Black female-dominated church. When we begin to focus on these areas, we do begin to see the substantial and long-standing African roots of the U.S. church in these spaces. So you discussed that one of the big roots of Black Catholicism in America comes from Haitian refugees and two other big motivations for Black Catholicism in the South from the beginning were education and bodily autonomy. And I want to discuss these other motivating factors, too. Absolutely. What's really fascinating about the Oblate Sisters of Providence and the Sisters of the Holy Family, that these are communities that are not only just simply being founded in these spaces, but they are being founded in cities that have some of the nation's largest slave markets, where often nude bodies of enslaved men, women, and children are being put on display. And so we really have to begin to understand that these are revolutionary acts. One thing that I argue is that for Black women, embracing the celibate religious state in the Roman Catholic Church automatically becomes a political act. It becomes an act of bodily liberation. In a society where the vast majority of Black bodies are owned and being commodified and being sold, you have a group of women who are saying, no, we own our rights to our bodies. And that in our understanding and our religion, have an opportunity to protect ourselves, but also to serve our communities. That's celibacy as an act of Black liberation. We have to understand this as an act of resistance to the sexual terrorism that is built into chattel slavery, into the system of racial segregation, because the sisters tell us this. In the case of the Sisters of the Holy Family, we know that their founders are products of a system of concubinage that was known as plissage, that was very common in French-controlled territories and Spanish-controlled territories, where European men would take Afro-Creole women as common law wives. It was this entire system, although it wasn't a system of legal marriage, um, women, they would sort of oftentimes sort of provide and pass on property to children, et cetera. These women understood this as a form of sexual terrorism. We know that the third founders of the Sisters of the Holy Family from their first written history 
We know that she is resisting attempts from her older sister to groom her for these quadrant balls where many of these matches were made. We also know that these women were products of massage. They were born to Afro-Creole mothers, but all of them, except of the six, all but one, another was from Boston, but the rest of them were natives of Louisiana. They were born to Afro-Creole mothers, but their fathers were European, French, Spanish, German. The sixth member of that community, in fact, is a descendant of the Pintado family, which was a Spanish Catholic family who surveyed Spanish Florida and Louisiana. In the case of their founders, Venerable Henriette DeLille, who was one of six African-Americans under consideration for sainthood in the church, she is the great-great-granddaughter of Claude de Bruyere, whose crews of free and enslaved men laid many of the first roads in New Orleans, the first canals. So we have to begin to sort of think about these things as radical acts. In the case of the Sisters of the Holy Family, after the Civil War, they began to buy up properties in New Orleans that had been associated with the sins of slavery. One of their first schools was a former slave trader's pen. In 1867, the community buys the former quadrant ballroom where these connections would be made to facilitate massage. And they turn the former quadrant ballroom into their mother house and the headquarters of their school, which is the first Black Catholic school for girls and the first Black high school in the state of Louisiana. So these sisters understood their calls to religious life is not simply spiritual calls, but also political calls. And we see them attempting to expiate the sins of slavery and segregation from these spaces, which I think is very powerful for us to think about within the context of Black women's political history. And that makes sense. Dedicating yourself to God in a system where Black people, specifically women, had no control over themselves. Choosing to be Catholic was a radical act. And Another big thing was education, which you mentioned building schools and education was kind of a huge motivator through the whole story of Black Catholicism, because those were some of the best schools for Black children from the beginning. Right. I mean, particularly for Black girls, both the Oblate Sisters of Providence and the Sisters of the Holy Family, their earliest academies are for free and enslaved Black girls. Large numbers of African-Americans have entrusted the church with the education of their children over the years, whether they're Catholic or not, turning to Catholic schools consistently to evade non-existent public schools, certainly during slavery and then Jim Crow or grossly underfunded public schools. And so Catholic schools oftentimes serve as safe havens for African-American parents who may not be Catholic. And that is in no way sort of um, discounting sort of the great work that public school systems do. Let me, I'm a very proud graduate of public school systems, but certainly during the eras of Jim Crow and even before then, the Catholic church does become an important part of the history of Black Catholic education. Now, the church does not dedicate equitable resources to their Black Catholic institutions, but the church does play a pivotal role. And sisters are absolutely crucial in that, not only in helping to pioneer Black Catholic education in the United States, but also sort of social welfare as well. In the case of the Holy Family Sisters, they found the first nursing home, regardless of race, for anyone. So they are also operating orphanages and nursing homes, which absolutely matters. And what we know also in the case of Black sisters, they are the first representatives of the church to champion and teach Black history and particularly call upon white sisters who begin to minister in the African-American community to teach Black history, understanding that one cannot have a quality Black Catholic education that, that does not instill racial pride, cannot reinforce ideas of racial inferiority, which unfortunately many white sisters who were unaware and uneducated about Black history were doing in their schools. And so you have Black sisters also making sure that Catholic education in itself does not 
reinforce these ideas of white supremacy in their schools, which was, I would argue, and as I argue in my book, a revolutionary step for these women to take. Definitely. Using these schools as places to teach Black history, it was done so early. It was very revolutionary. Even before the founding of Negro History Week in 1926, there is evidence that the Yahweh Sisters of Providence in Baltimore and in their schools were celebrating Emancipation Day and teaching Black history in these 19th century Emancipation Day celebrations. And so Black women teachers are very much a part of this effort to popularize teaching of Black history in Black schools and particularly in the public school system. But we certainly know that many Black sisters, and in the case of the Yahweh Sisters of Providence by 1946, they were having these elaborate Negro History Week celebrations, so much so that it was drawing attention within the press. There's this great example from the Chicago Defender where Langston Hughes, a great poet, makes a trip to North Carolina and he visits a school led by the Oblate Sisters of Providence. And he says the children put on a fine Negro History Week program for him. It's not just sort of the members of the Black Sisterhood, right? Pioneering Black sisters in white communities also inaugurate the teaching of Black history in predominantly white or racially integrated schools. In the case of the Oblate Sisters of Providence as well, when they begin to desegregate the faculties of white institutions, this is also true for the Sisters of the Holy Family and the Franciscan Handmaids of Mary. And when they begin to desegregate the faculties of white schools, they bring the teaching of Black history into those spaces. And so these are also very intentional and political acts to sort of bring that teaching in. They understood that the denial of Black history, right, was linked to sort of this ongoing assault on Black human and civil rights. And so it's important to understand that Black sisters understood this and they were doing this work within their church. The problem is we have not turned our attention to the church, so we've missed all of this activism. White people weren't exactly happy about seeing Black education because it is so powerful. So one of the big attacks, well, there were a lot of them. I mean, there was violence, but I always like to show institutional attacks. And one of the big ones was requiring degrees for teachers in Catholic schools, but Catholic higher education was segregated. There weren't schools that these sisters could go to. So that's like a whole era of this movement was desegregating higher learning so that Black sisters could continue teaching. Right. U.S. Black Catholic sisters are unsung desegregation pioneers. Prior to the Brown decision, members of the nation's historically Black sisterhoods, but also Black women who desegregate the nation's historic white ethnic sisterhoods, oftentimes are desegregating colleges and universities. They're also desegregating faculties and the various institutions in which their orders minister. But after World War I, laws began to change requiring higher education of private school teachers. And in this particular moment, the Catholic Church, which had initially resisted state interference, actually embraced the movement for teacher reform and the accreditation of teachers because they want to raise the standards of their institutions. And so this becomes a Herculean task for all religious sisters, regardless of race. They have to get their schools accredited. Their sisters have to earn at least normal certificates. But by a certain point, they have to get at least their master's degrees to ensure the accreditation and state approval of their schools. The challenge is for Black sisters, most Catholic colleges and universities will not accept African-Americans, whether they are Catholic or not, whether they are religious or not. And so this creates a crisis. If Catholic schools administered by Black religious cannot be accredited, 
one, what is going to be the future of the Black orders? What is also going to be the future of Black administered education, right? Because there are differences between Black administered Catholic education and white administered education. And it will also give ammunition to those who say that white administered Catholic schools are automatically going to be better than Black Catholic schools. So there is a great concern and a great movement within the Black Catholic community to ensure sisters are given a fair opportunity to earn their degrees. And so we see sisters, priests, Black sisters, Black leadership councils, a very small cadre of white sisters and white priests who are administrators at universities, along with the Vatican and a few bishops stepping in to sort of find ways for Black sisters to very quietly desegregate a host of Catholic colleges and universities prior to the Brown decision. So these women are going into institutions like Villanova in 1924. St. Louis University in 1927, and the Oblate Sisters of Providence reintegrate the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. in 1933. And then we'll see these women, as the decades continue, begin to quietly desegregate the faculties of white Catholic colleges and universities. You know, probably one of the, the most amazing stories that I found was the story of Dr. Frances Douglas, the first African-American daughter of the Heart of Mary. In 1956, she becomes the first African-American chair at DePaul University in Chicago. What's really interesting is that that's September 1956, and we've always been taught that the first African-American to chair a department at a historically white institution was the great African-American historian, Dr. John Hope Franklin, when he was appointed at Brooklyn College in 1956. But Dr. Douglas, who was not known as a nun because her community did not wear habits, so many of her colleagues didn't know she was a nun, she begins as the chair of the psychology department at DePaul the same month and the same year as Dr. John Hope Franklin begins at Brooklyn. And I'm like, hello, people. And so she's right there with him, but also she's the first Black woman, the first Black woman to chair a department at a historically white institution as a nun. And there are so many stories like this. They're breaking these barriers. They're oftentimes doing this without the protection and the awareness of the media, right? These women are going into communities. They're going into these institutions, going into these racial sundown towns and very hostile spaces and doing this work. And like any pioneer, right, the pioneers suffer. They are bullied in classrooms. They are subjected to racism in classrooms. Really one fascinating piece of evidence that I found in the archives of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, that when they encountered racism, they were speaking back. So much so that their community has to develop a list of rules like if someone says something, whether it's the teacher, the professor, or a secular student says something negative about the Negro race, don't say anything, don't share it with anybody, keep that in. And in part, they understand sort of the bigger goal, but they also understand that they're in a very precarious position. White Catholic spaces are, are hostile in ways in which we know about, but we don't. Women's religious life is a stronghold of white supremacy and racial segregation. And sisters have far more influence. Certainly what we argue is that they have far more influence than the priests because they outnumber the priests. And they're in the lives of people day in and day out. And so they are deeply implicated in the tremendous sin history of anti-Black racism within the church and modern American society. And so when Black women went into these spaces, either as pioneering members of white communities or into these institutions, they will encounter a bigotry that shakes us because it is a history that has far too often been denied. One of the things that really stood out to me when I began this research was 
you know, how in the world do we not know that Black nuns desegregated all of these institutions, all of these Catholic colleges and universities? They have not been given their due. So I, I really do hope that my book helps us to sort of begin to make these steps at acknowledging and celebrating these women. And again, acknowledging them within their own history, but also acknowledging them as desegregation and pioneers and Black freedom fighters within their own right. This history really does change the whole timeline of the Black freedom movement. There's so many firsts that come up in your book that were Black women in the Catholic Church. And I want to push it towards Selma. Selma is kind of where Catholicism enters the mainstream of Black freedom struggle, but it had been there the whole time, right alongside the rest of Black freedom struggle. It just wasn't talked about until now, apparently. Selma has always been seen as this moment, right? This is when the church comes into the movement. The Catholic Church is really late, but it's Selma where we have this moment where we see hundreds of priests and sisters marching in Selma, hundreds more who are marching in Selma demonstrations across the country, that this is the turning point. And I'm saying, no, that's only a turning point if you ignore Black sisters. They had already been doing this work. That sort of narrative has been allowed to stand because very few sisters march in Selma. And there was not an understanding that Black sisters marched in the Selma sympathy demonstration. And that's where it becomes complicated, because if you are a member specifically of a Black sisterhood, or if you were a pioneering member of a white sisterhood, you ran into barriers trying to become active in this secular movement, right? In this traditional sort of very formal fight for civil rights. We know that many communities, white superiors do not allow their pioneering Black members to go to Selma, and these women wanted to go. They were not allowed to go. And in the case of the Black sisterhoods, they were very uneasy, very scared. And let me be very clear, the Black leadership councils and the Black sisterhoods, there is no opposition to the civil rights movement. The question, of course, is can you release sisters to go risk themselves when, in fact, you are also running sites of Black liberation in your schools? Their argument is our school is a testament to our activism, our commitment to this freedom struggle, and our schools must survive. What I sort of reveal in my book is one, yes, there are Black sisters who go to Selma. There are Black sisters who march in Selma sympathy demonstrations, including the members of the Franciscan Handmaids of Mary in Harlem. But also there are these cases of Black sisters who were telling us, no, we were watching Selma. We wanted to go to Selma. We were getting involved in all kinds of things, but we were running into different kinds of barriers. And so chapter four really looks at making sure that we get this framing right. But this idea that somehow white sisters that were in the vanguard of the fight for civil rights has to really be interrogated and really pushed back against. Because even when Black sisters were not allowed to march in Selma, we know that the Oblate Sisters of Providence, at least two of them who were stationed in Washington, D.C., marched in the March on Washington for Jobs and Justice in 1963, defying their superiors. We know that they are protesting books that are made available in their archdiocese that ignore or exclude or erase the contributions of African-Americans, that we have to begin to sort of think about those things as also political. And perhaps most importantly, they're still desegregating white orders. That in itself is a part of the movement. These are women who were also very much a part of what historians call the Till generation. These young girls, these youths who were teenagers when Emmett Till was lynched in Money, Mississippi in 1955. And that sort of serves as a moment for their radicalization. Indeed, the chief architect of the National Black Sisters Conference in 1968 tells us, like, when I saw Emmett Till in that Jet magazine, it changed me. And I knew that I wanted to do something. I didn't know how to talk about it. She's not going to be among that generation that joins 
the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and launches these sit-ins across the country that push the movement forward, but she's going to desegregate a white community. And so my argument is that those acts are still very much a part of this movement and they need to be understood as such because they are actually wielding what I would argue a more difficult battle. They are trying to literally transform the heart of white segregation as vessels of anti-Black hatred into love. That's a big ass. And they're doing this work. We sort of talk about it as we need to desegregate the nation's most segregated hour. We already had young girls trying to do that long before 1960. They went into those communities. This was 24-7. And that's the point that I try to push home. When we see these images of brave young African-American boys and girls who are desegregating public schools, to understand that we had that same story within the Catholic Church of those who were desegregating seminaries and sisterhoods. But again, they didn't have the protection of a news camera. They, they had to leave their communities. And if we think about sort of Ruby Bridges or the Little Rock Nine, they got to go home at night. They got to go back into the communities to be restored, to be loved, to be protected. Those who went into these white convents and these white seminaries were by themselves in communities of hundreds and sometimes thousands where they were not wanted. And they suffer. And we don't get those stories because oftentimes it wasn't even covered. And so part of what we have to do is remember those other battlegrounds of the Black freedom struggle as well. And what I say is the church and particularly religious life is one of these fierce ones. And it was a consequential battleground. You talked about the Till generation and Black nuns really starting to get pretty radical in their struggle. And that really peaks at the assassination of MLK. At that point, Black sisters are either like, I'm done with this, and they try to leave, or they stop holding back. Like, they get very radical within Catholicism. And found the National Black Sisters Conference, this Black Power Federation of Catholic nuns, organized in response to King's assassination, but also to sort of stake their claim in the Black Revolution and to bring the Black Revolution into the Catholic Church. So there are many interventions that I try to make in that particular chapter one of the most important is the role of Sister M. Martin Deport as great, not only as the chief architect of the National Black Sisters Conference, but also to finally expose what happened to her at the founding meeting of the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus. The first full survey of the Black Catholic community, and the only one that we have, was published by Father Cyprian Davis in 1990. Father Cyprian begins his book noting the formation of the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus he does not write about the National Black Sisters Conference. He relegates them to a timeline. Now, he's a founding member of the Black Catholic Clergy Caucus. Also interesting in his book, he makes no mention that Sister M. Martin DePore is raised there or what happened to her at that meeting. There was a terrible confrontation there of the misogyny, and, and quite frankly, the better term is misogynoir, of the nation's Black priests. And I sort of recount that confrontation that she has and her sort of very real fears that she expresses to the men about their limited and circumscribed view of Black liberation that doesn't include Black women and girls and does not include Black sisters. It is important that we understand why the National Black Sisters Conference is founded. It's not only founded to sort of bring Black sisters from the Black and white communities together to take down racism, to take on individual institutional racism within the Catholic Church, but it's also founded due to the sexist exclusion of Sister Ann Martin Deporez Gray. But nonetheless, she goes on to organize the National Black Sisters Conference. And it really is a consciousness-raising moment for her. Upon King's assassination, like many Black sisters and priests who were in white convents or seminarians, 
will be exposed to the ugliest faces of Black Catholicism. They're going to be in communities that celebrate King's assassination or people who are simply indifferent. There's one example of a pioneering Black sister in a white community, and she was riding in a car with several of her community members, and they heard on the radio that King was assassinated, and they just turned the radio off like nothing happened. It went on with the conversation. We know that some sisters begin to leave their communities. Sister M. Martin Deportes Gray herself suffers an attack within her community in the phase following King's assassination. We all say that sort of God intervened and she found her way, received an invitation to this founding meeting of the priest and then was excluded and then went on to found her own community. And she brings these women together at her orders university. Her superior actually is also very much transformed by King's assassination pledges her support to Sister Martin DePores Gray in the organization of the National Black Sisters Conference in any way that she can. And Mother Thomas Aquinas Carroll absolutely does that. And then you have sisters brought together. And among many things, they begin to testify what, about what had happened to them in religious life, how so many of them had internalized racism in their communities. Some of it was implicitly enforced, some of it was deliberately enforced. But many of them begin to sort of tell their stories and they realize that they have a place in this Black revolution. Many as educators or pioneer nurse or hospital heads or university professors. And they launch a program of racial justice reform to rock the church. We're going to sort of amplify what the Black orders have always been doing. We're not simply going to teach Black history anymore. We're going to found Black studies at our institutions. We're going to teach Swahili. We're going to march in the streets. You have sister, a sister being arrested for participating in a welfare rights sit-in. You have sisters who are taking on police violence in Detroit who are doing all of this work, aligning themselves with the most radical civil rights and Black powerful organizations of the time. One sister who's bailing students out of jail, you know, so you have sisters who are radicalized by this moment, but also are transforming. They had already been involved, but they had desegregated their communities. This was just sort of a natural evolution of the work that they were doing. But you also have Black sisters who are leaving, who are like, it can't be safe. Um, it can't be saved. And we have to go because we have to save our lives. So you see all kinds of political decisions being made by these women at a point. And I think what's perhaps most important, or what I want to emphasize right now, is how they begin to actually articulate very clearly how celibacy frees them to participate in the Black Revolution. That that is something that we know that their foremothers in the church are doing. We sort of see it pop up, but it's really in the late 60s and 70s where these women are really sort of thinking very critically about Black theology, Black womanist theology, but also specifically thinking about sort of the power of celibacy and its role in the Black Revolution, which I think creates another dimension of how Black women challenge the sexist politics and misogynistic politics of some segments of the Black community during this moment. Yeah, because at this moment, celibacy was more rebellion against misogyny because a lot of times Black women were supposed to, their like role in the revolution was supposed to be to be mothers. But they said, we're not going to have kids because that's not our role in the revolution. One of the last battles that you talk about in the book was the fight to keep Black Catholic schools open. Because towards, was that like the 90s-ish, 80s and 90s? There was just a huge push to close inner city Catholic schools. But really that fight sort of starts at the onside of integration. We begin to see decisions being made by all white school boards or white archdiocesan or diocesan officials who move forward with integration by deciding to close Black schools and allow a select number of kids to go into white schools, but not necessarily thinking about desegregating faculties. And so after the Brown decision, we begin to see Black leadership councils beginning to confront sort of this demand that they close their schools. 
and let their kids be integrated into white schools. Black sisters are, the Black leadership councils are very uneasy about this. If it didn't go right and their schools were closed, what would happen to those kids if, if our schools are closed and they need to come back into our schools? By the 70s, you are seeing sort of a crisis of Black Catholic education, but it's a part of a larger story of the crisis of Catholic education. The Catholic educational system is very much built upon the largely underpaid labor of women religious. One of the reasons why costs could be kept low is because sisters were not making the same salaries as their secular counterparts. So when you have sisters and priests beginning to leave religious life by the thousands, and this is not simply Black religious, but also white religious, we're also leaving religious life, there are these huge challenges that come into play. And so... It requires sort of councils to make very, very difficult decisions about closing schools. So we'll see lots of schools closed. It's going to be most acute in the African-American community. Desegregation already sort of is disrupting. And then archdiocese and school boards are beginning to sort of make decisions to close a lot of inner city schools as a result of white flight. So there are a host of reasons why there is a crisis of Catholic education and also why it's most acute in the Black community. Now, in my chapter, I also talk about examples of priests attempting to sort of discipline Black sisters and principals or teachers in ways that sort of reek of massive resistance to Black liberation at this time and Black self-determination. At this moment, in this crisis of Black Catholic schools, both members of the Black Sisterhoods, but also the members of the National Black Sisters Conference begin to develop a host of plans to sort of save Black Catholic education. Many of them become involved in the community control movement attempting to turn Black Catholic schools into community-controlled institutions to save them. We see them fighting it back against the closures of Black Catholic schools. Sisters sometimes sit in at churches. In Detroit, there's a very famous example of Black sisters who are part of the Detroit movement who shut down a parish to dramatize the plans to close most of the city's Black Catholic schools, including their only Black Catholic high school. And so you see very concerted efforts on the part of Black Catholics, Black Catholic parents, and Black parents in general, recognizing that if these schools close, the future of the Black Catholic community would be in great jeopardy. Catholic schools had primarily served as the sites of evangelization within the Black community. And so without these, most African-Americans were fearful that the church would no longer be relevant and certainly have no more credibility within the Black Catholic community and the Black community at large. And so I wanted to make sure that I detailed this very, very clear fight and to remind us that Black sisters were very much a part of this fight for community control. They were in conversation with some of the many of the great leaders of the community control movement, particularly Dr. Kenneth Haskins, I sort of even remark in Boston, one of Dr. Haskins' graduate students who was working with the leaders of the National Black Sisters Conference at one of their schools, the St. Joseph Community School, was a graduate student named Patricia Hill. And I said to myself, I was like, wouldn't that be funny if that was Dr. Patricia Hill Commons, sort of the great sociologist and Black feminist scholar. And I remember seeing the photo of her in the National Black Sisters Conference Survival of Soul magazine. The photo is not in the book, but I do have a photo of her. And it is Dr. Patricia Hill Collins. And if you read Black Feminist Thought, the school that she's talking about where she began her research is St. Joseph's School. So there's just, again, so much rich information there reminding us of this long fight for Black education, which is also very much a part of the Black Catholic movement. My last question is just, what is this like covert struggle that you've uncovered in detail? What does this teach us about the Black freedom struggle today? I would say it teaches us and it helps us to understand 
why Black sisters are still at the forefront of the call for fighting institutional racism and individual racism within the church and wider American society. Unlike their male counterparts, Black bishops, by and large, they have not been vocally supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. They have not even dared to proclaim Black Lives Matter. And yet we have Black sisters on the ground, many of the founding members of the National Black Sisters Conference, women who desegregated their communities, who have been very much a part of, who have embraced that slogan, who have still been outspoken in their role as leaders in their communities, in their roles, still as educators, as healthcare administrators, still serving in the vanguard of this movement. Black Sisters right now, the National Black Sisters Conference has been calling as much attention as possible to the crisis of voter suppression. They have been outspoken, certainly in wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and just sort of the ongoing crisis of police violence, the ongoing crisis of institutional racism within healthcare, within banking. And so part of what my book helps us to understand is you can't understand why Black sisters are still in the vanguard at this moment if you don't understand that there is a history within the church, this tradition of sustained protest to white supremacy that has been within the church that helps us to understand why Black Catholics, even more than their Black Protestant counterparts, believe that fighting racism and sexism is essential to what it means to be Christian. It's essential to their faith. You can't understand that if you listen to some of these other narratives that say that Black Catholics were conservative until the late 1960s, right? They didn't really sort of come into their own until the late 1960s. That doesn't make any sense. But it only makes sense if you ignore Black Catholic women, not only religious women, but also lay women. And so I think what my book wants to do and what I wanted to do was to make visible this long and sustained tradition of Black Catholic resistance to white supremacy really sort of propelled by sort of the faithfulness, but also the political activism of Black women, religious and lay. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. Thank you so much, Brooklyn. It's really been a privilege. And again, just thank you for the opportunity. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed the book. I'm just so glad you wrote this down. If someone isn't writing them down, we're going to lose them. Absolutely. And, you know, as I say in the book, you know, I haven't said all there is to say about African-American sisters' journey. There's so much more. My next few projects will sort of bring so much of this history because there's only so much that I could do. I couldn't use all the interviews. You know, there's so much rich that's there. And it's a reminder that our elders are carrying these stories. And absolutely, as you said, if we don't write this stuff down, if we don't get this preserved, we're going to lose it. So thank you for your work. And uh, again, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for coming. So not only is there enough more to say about Black Sisters to fill up several more books, because Subversive Habits was a full survey of Black Sisters' lives, there's actually so much that didn't even make it into this interview. So if you want to know more, Subversive Habits will be out May of 2022. As always, you can show my show some love by telling other people that you love this show. All power to all people, y'all.